If you would, as the kids kind of move in that direction, turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 3. And we're going to continue our series through the Gospel of Mark. And the title of this sermon um, is going to be The Way of Spiritual Family. We've been talking about this idea that the gospel uh, that Jesus comes on into the scene and proclaims it's a way. It's a way of believing. It's a way of living. There's implications to that way. And so today, the title of the sermon is The Way of Spiritual Family. And the thesis statement that I want to put before you is that God's people, God's people are a spiritual family formed by Christ on the foundation of forgiveness, and they function together by imaging their Redeemer. And the whole sermon is going to be unpacking all of that because there's a lot going on in there. But just know, big picture, that God is in the business of working through families. Adam and Eve, family, first family. Noah and his family, God saved people through judgment, through the flood by Noah and his family. Abram calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and says, I'm going to make you a great family in whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And from that family comes King David and ultimately King Jesus. So God is in the business of working through families, and today we're going to see that that way is the way of spiritual family. So I'm going to read the text, verses 7 through 35. That's a lot. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. So here now, God's holy and inspired and life-giving word, Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Eudemia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and they might, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able, will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's a lot going on. Lots of names, lots of places, lots of stuff. Lord, I ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, help us to know what you would have us know from this text. That these wouldn't just be ancient words and names on a paper from thousands of years and miles away, but they would be the names and places of of our heritage as a spiritual family bought by your blood. Father, there's so much stuff going on in these words and in our lives and in the world around us. Show us how that you bring unity out of such diversity and division. Show us how you even conquer our own divided hearts so that we might be full of your spirit and live as your people. Lord, we pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Why would 21 elephants cross a bridge? That's not a joke. That's a, that's a real question. And the, the real answer is to get to the other side. Because back in the 19th century, um, suspension bridges were a new and wonderful invention. And the biggest one to date at the end of the 19th century was the Brooklyn Bridge. But you see, people were skeptical. People didn't like it. It was big. It was scary. It was new. It was different. They didn't know that it was going to work. In fact, some people had died in the process of making it. And so to prove that it was safe and also to promote his circus, P.T. Barnum sent 21 elephants, not to mention camels and giraffes and other things, across the bridge to show that this was something that the people could use, that it was something worth using, that it was stable, that it would not break. You see, when something is new... When something is different, when something comes on the scene that you're not used to, people are skeptical. People don't know what to do with it. And that's exactly what's going on in these verses as Jesus begins to break away from the established Jewish religious tradition. You see, Jesus comes onto the scene proclaiming the kingdom of God. And as he does that, we see this growing tension between Jesus, his kingdom, his gospel, and the established religious authorities. So the first point that I want to make in this sermon is that Jesus forms this spiritual family. He gathers these raw materials for this building project, not of a bridge, but of a people. And as he does that, he breaks away from the established tradition. So let's look now at verses 7 through 19. We see Jesus withdrawing with his disciples from the synagogue, going towards the sea. Standard ministry practice of Jesus. Lots of good stuff happening by the sea. And as he does that, a great crowd follows him. And we know that they follow him because they heard what he had been doing. He had been preaching. He had been healing. He had been casting out demons. And not only do we know who's following, and we know why they're doing it, and we know where they're from. We, we, we look at this, this text and we see that the crowds, they were pressing in and they were surrounding him because they had heard that he had healed people and they wanted to be healed as well. And so Jesus had his disciples get a boat ready so he could stand up there and he could continue preaching. And this is just a wonderful bit of literary irony because a few verses earlier in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees counseled with the Herodians to figure out how to destroy him. But now here's Jesus doing ministry. The people that want to see him are actually 
threatening his life, so he has to get in the boat. And not only do we know what they're doing, pressing in around him because they want to be near him, they want to be healed by diseases, but we know where they're from. you got the obvious uh, examples of Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, but then you have these other areas, Eudemia, beyond the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, and that's really significant because what we see there is well, Eudemia, that's a Greek word that in the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that would have been Edom. And if you remember your Old Testament, or if you just want to know, Edom was often a country under God's judgment. There's a whole minor prophet, Obadiah, written condemning Edom. And Edom was a place that was, at this point, uh, it was it was Jewish. Um, there was there was Jewish people, but then there was a bunch of pagan, non-Jewish influence. So it was kind of a mixed bag. But then, but then you have Tyre and Sidon. That's from way up north. That's not Jewish. That's pagan. That's Gentile. That is not the normal people that God would have worked through in redemptive history. And so what we see in this beginning, when Jesus is forming the family of God, when he is gathering the raw materials of his construction project, he's doing that from not Israel. He's doing that from beyond the bounds of ethnic Israel. He's doing that from beyond the bounds of what God had normally done up to this point in redemptive history. So we see that not only is the break between Jesus and the religious leaders growing, but his influence is growing. It's not just constrained to Galilee and Jerusalem and Judea. It's going beyond the borders, beyond the Jordan, to a people not Jewish. And at this point, at this point, Jesus goes from there, goes up to the mountain, another great place of ministry in the Gospel of Mark, not just by the sea, but by the mountain. And he calls out of the crowd, there's a crowd of disciples following him as well, and he calls from there 12 disciples that he also names apostles. Now, kids, kids, do you have jobs at your house? You have chores that you have to do. What are some of your chores? Unloading the dishes? They do, Okay. Would clean your rooms? That's that's tough. Yeah. What's up? Ooh, cleaning the bathrooms. That's that's rough. Caleb. Hey, I personally I don't understand the, the act of making the bed because you're just going to get in and mess it up again. Yeah. But anyway, so you all have jobs at your house to help your moms and dads out with what you're doing. Jesus, with what he's doing here, is he's calling apostles to himself, and he's giving them jobs. So Jesus isn't just going to do this ministry on his own. He's bringing people with him, giving them jobs in this family like you have jobs at your family. And their job was to preach and to cast out demons to do the stuff that Jesus has been doing. Now, remind me again, kids, one more thing. How many apostles did he call? Twelve. Good work. Twelve. That is not a random number, nor is this a random place. When we read this, when we read what's going on in Mark, we need to read this with an echo of Exodus 19 and 20, all right, where God's people went to another mountain, right, the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses brought down the revelation of God to them and said, you're going to be a body politic. You're going to be a people after my own possession. I've saved you. I've redeemed you. Here are my laws that you're going to live by. What Jesus is doing here in the Gospel of Mark is he's forming a new Israel, not with 12 tribes from ethnic uh, uniformity, but 12 men 
from a diverse background. They're all Jewish, but they're all different. And he is forming a new Israel, a new spiritual family with these men that are going to help him build that. And we cannot miss, we cannot miss the, the importance of this because God is expanding his family beyond ethnic Israel. This is exactly what he promised in the Old Testament, that the nations would stream to Mount Zion. We see that in the book of Isaiah. And so being gathered in this new covenant community, this new family is not going to be on the basis of ethnic background. It's not going to be on the basis of religious tradition. It's not going to be on the basis of, of scribal or Pharisaic authority. It's going to be on the basis of the call of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the people who have followed Jesus from Tyre and Sidon and Eudemia and beyond the Jordan, I'm not saying that they have all been, to use our language, effectually called and converted. But what I am saying is that as they're doing this, as they're streaming to him, that's a picture of what God promised in the Old Testament. And then out of that group, there were disciples. And Jesus calls, though, the Greek is actually really strong, whom he desired, whom he willed, he summoned them to himself, and they came. And so when we think about the forming of the spiritual family, it's going to come from outside ethnic Israel, and it's going to be entirely based on the influence and the call of Christ. Now, here's an Two implications for you. Christ is going to build his church, but you get to be a part of it. Christ is going to build his church, and you get to be a part of it. In a parallel gospel to Mark, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, when Peter confesses that he's the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus says, yeah, on this rock I will build my church. And contrary to the Roman Catholics, it's not Peter being the Pope. That's on Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. And so Christ is the foundation, we're going to talk more about that later, on whom the church is going to be built and what the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We sang about that, though men, I don't even remember the words from the church's one foundation, but the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. He will build it. And... You get to be a part of it. Because he says later in the Gospel of Matthew, that great commission from Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize, teaching them all I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so here's kind of where it matters for you. If you're a member of God's family, you have the opportunity and obligation to not be an apostle. You're not an apostle. There's no apostles anymore. But you have the opportunity to witness, to bear witness to who Christ is, what he's done, not only in history, but also in your own life to the people around you. Parents, that means that we have opportunity and obligation to witness to our own children what Christ has done in our lives. If you're a student, you have the opportunity and obligation to witness to your friends, to your teachers, to your coworkers who Christ is, what he has done, and what he has done in your life. And I know, I know that that's scary because I don't like doing it too, and I'm a pastor. It's tough for me. But here's where it gets to be really, I think, encouraging, and the pressure gets to be taken off. It is not your job to argue someone into the kingdom. Notice here, the disciples aren't calling people right now. It's Jesus. 
So if somebody is going to be called into the family of God, it is up to the call of Jesus. You get to be a part of that, and he might use your witnessing to do that, but you are not going to argue somebody into the kingdom. You are not going to cajole somebody into the kingdom. You are not going to convince somebody by the force of your intellect and will that they should be a Christian. And so when you, as God's people, bear witness to who Christ is and what he's done, you can have the confidence knowing that it's not up to you. He's going to do it when he calls people, when he wills. And so you have the freedom to just be honest with what Christ has done for you and not have the pressure of it all being up to you. Now, if we do that, and if what we see in the text is true, and all these kinds of people from different countries, different backgrounds, different professional backgrounds, if all these people are streaming together, how can you have unity? How can you have community out of such diversity? Well, that's going to lead us to the second point. We have to have a foundation for this spiritual family. And what we're going to see in verses 20 through 30 is that the foundation of this spiritual family is going to be forgiveness from the king. So as Jesus continues, he went home and the crowd gathered again so he couldn't even eat. And um, the scribes come down from Jerusalem and we see this exchange between Jesus and the scribes. And the scribes were attributing Jesus' ministry to Satan. You know, by the, the, by the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. And again, they were essentially calling him a devil and, and not the son of God. And again, we get to see this beautiful bit of literary irony because as we've seen up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, the actual demon-possessed people are the ones who know that Jesus is the Son of God, and he commands them to not speak. But when the religious leaders come, they're saying, no, this guy, he's, he's only doing this because he has a demon. And so what we see in this exchange is that there is an increasing fracture between understanding who Christ is and the religious authorities. And so Jesus responds to these claims. He responds to this accusation, rightfully so, saying, that's ridiculous. And look, he doesn't even use really a theological argument. He does a, a regular logical argument. He, he says, look, in, in, in verse um, 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. A house divided against itself, a house won't stand either. Satan has risen up against himself and he's divided. He can't stand, but it's coming to an end. If something is divided and doesn't have a foundation, it's not going to stand up. Kids, I have another question for you. You ever seen a pyramid? Not in real life. Like, probably, a, I mean, maybe in real life. What's a, what shape is a pyramid, Caleb? It's a squarey cone. So if you were going to make it a two-dimensional shape, what, would you, what shape would you say? Triangle. Now, kids, correct me if I'm wrong. A triangle is bigger at the bottom than it is at the top, right? Yeah. What would happen if you turned a triangle up on its head? Would it stand up straight? No, it would topple over because its foundation would be weak, unable to support it. So again, the Brooklyn Bridge, the only reason the Brooklyn Bridge is spanning the East River is because there are these massive stone pillars that have been dug deep down into the bedrock that the bridge itself is attached to. Something is only going to be as strong and as stable as its foundation. All right? And what the scribes are saying here, what the scribes are saying is that Jesus isn't actually the son of God. He's a demon. And so this is the kingdom of Satan divided against itself. And Jesus says that is patently absurd. 
What is going on here? We see in verse 27 is that there are two kingdoms at war. Jesus says, you don't go into a strong man's house and try to take his stuff unless you go in and bind the strong man first. And so what he's saying in that is that the kingdom of God is here. I'm binding the strong man. Jesus has already bound Satan. He is already casting out demons. And what he is saying is his kingdom is now at war with the kingdom of Satan. Now, what does that have to do with forgiveness? We're getting there. Participation in said kingdom, belonging to said kingdom, is only going to happen on the basis of forgiveness as we see in verse 28. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. So what he is saying is that if you are going to be on the side of the Messiah, the one who has bound the strong man, the one who is at war with Satan himself, is that you have to be forgiven. Any blasphemy you utter, any sin you commit will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is guilty of the eternal sin and never has forgiveness. Meaning that if you are guilty of this eternal sin, you are eternally outside of the kingdom of God. You are eternally condemned. And what this means is not that if you say the wrong words, you're, you're hosed for the eternity. What this means is that if you continually reject the person of Jesus and his message, if you continually reject the illumination of the Holy Spirit, if you continually reject and deny that Jesus is the Messiah, you will be outside of the kingdom of God forever. And there is no taking that back. There are no chances of repentance when you are condemned in hell. If you misidentify the Messiah, you miss out on the benefits of redemption. You see, because when you believe in Christ, when you believe in Christ, when you respond to the call of Christ in your life, when you trust in Christ for your salvation, what, what happens is the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ's redemption to you. See, we have it twisted a little bit in our culture. We think, oh, if I just say a prayer, I'm good. If I say the sinner's prayer, I'm good. If I, if I decide that I'm going to follow Jesus, that's all I need. No, what we see in the scriptures is that when you trust in Christ, when you go to Christ, when you believe that Christ is who he says he is, the Son of God, then, then the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ's redemption to you and regenerates your heart and you are forgiven despite all all your sin and rebellion. You are in the kingdom of God on the team of the man, binding the strong man by work of the Holy Spirit applying Christ's death and resurrection to you. It's what we confessed earlier in the service. You who are once far off. You who are once outside of the bounds of the family of God. You who are once not close to anything having to do with God. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And because Jesus can't sprinkle his blood on you right now, the Holy Spirit applies that sacrifice to you so that you could be forgiven of your sins. You see, when you are then forgiven and brought into this family, you're being built up, as we sang earlier, on the church's one foundation that Jesus Christ, her Lord Peter, says it in 1 Peter that Christ is the cornerstone of this new spiritual house that's being built. And we get brought in when we are forgiven by Christ. And the Holy Spirit applies that forgiveness to us. And so the implication for this, brothers and sisters of mine, is that until Christ comes back, 
and makes all things new. There is always going to be a war between the church of God, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of darkness. There is always going to be a separation and a division between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God and his spiritual family. And we see that. And we can be honest about that, right? Like if you belong to the kingdom of God, you have a different foundation under you than if you don't belong to the kingdom of God. I mean, that is so clear in, in our cultural kind of moment right now that it, it is an, an outrageously audacious claim. It, it is a, a uber alt-right conservative thing to have the audacious claim that marriage that God designed is, is a covenant between one man and one woman. But because we believe that, because we confess that as Christians, we are at odds with the world around us. It is a, a, beyond the pale that we would confess as God's people that God made man, male and female, after his own image, and that there aren't infinite genders in between them on a spectrum. Like those beliefs show that we are at odds with the world who doesn't have the same foundation as us. But look, brothers and sisters, I do not want to sit up here and just say, look at the culture war. Look at how different we are from the world. Look how much they hate us for believing in the Bible. I also want to show you, look, the world's not going to understand not only those beliefs that are true and that we confess, but the world's not going to understand when you forgive somebody who wrongs you, when somebody does something to you that's worthy of a lawsuit, and you say, nope, I'm a believer, I'm not going to go and sue them. They're, they're not going to understand why somebody who has been so evil and so toxic to you, you don't just cut them out of your life and say, forget you, I, I don't need that kind of negativity. When you forgive them, the world's not going to understand that because you have a different foundation you have a foundation of being forgiven by the king. So you and I are going to live differently because we have a different life and a different purpose and a different Lord. So there's always going to be division between the kingdom of this world and the family of God. Embrace that and, and learn to expect it and, and we'll, we'll keep on keeping on. But God does not call us to be different just for the sake of being different. We're, we're going to be different primarily because as a spiritual family, we have a function. We, we don't just get saved just to sit around and twiddling our thumbs and wait till Jesus comes back. When God calls us into the spiritual family, we have a new function to perform. And so let's continue looking at this passage in verses 31 through the end. As Jesus continues teaching, his mother and his brothers come out and they're outside. And again, fun bits of literary irony. The crowd is inside the house and the family is outside the house. That's the opposite of the way that it should be. And as the as mom and brothers are outside, they call to Jesus. And what they're doing, the disciples say, they're, they're seeking you. And if you remember through our discussion through the Gospel of Mark, seeking Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is not a good thing. Right? The, the kind of grammatical implication there is that they were seeking him to kind of control him. It says earlier in this passage that they thought he was out of his mind. They thought, he's crazy, we got to do something to take care of him. And Jesus, as they're outside calling for him, presuming upon him, presuming upon his uh, wanting to go be with them, he says, no, no, that's not my real family. That's not my real family. And he looks around and he says, look, the ones who do the will of God, that's my mother, that's my brother, that's my sister. You see, belonging to the family of God is not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. 
Belonging to the family of God is not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. That's one of the reasons why I said we should confess about baptism, right? Because we have this weird thing in the Presbyterian church. We put the sign of the covenant on babies who might yet not believe, all right? They get the sign of being a part of the church when they're born into the church, even though they might not believe yet. Now, why do we do that? Because we, in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition, we have a distinction between the visible and the invisible church. And what I mean by that is being born into the church, being born into a family of Christians, does not automatically make you a Christian. This is a hard thing to to deal with. Just like it must have been a hard thing to hear, you're not my mom and brothers from Jesus. Just because you're born into a moral, ethical, upright, conservative family that goes to church does not make you a Christian because natural birth is not the way into the kingdom of God. You see, as believers, when we read the Bible, we know that what Paul writes in Ephesians is true, that we were by nature children of wrath. Parents, you know this quite well, that when you have little kids, you don't have to teach them how to fight with their siblings. You know that you don't have to teach them how to say mine and no and defy your will. We know as parents that when we are born into the world by nature, we are rebellious. We go our own way. We don't want to do what our parents say or what, our, what the Bible says. We are by nature children of wrath, even if we've been born into the covenant family of God. But, but, when you respond to the call of Christ, when the Holy Spirit regenerates your hearts and applies the work of Christ's redemption to you, you're what? You are born again, not of natural birth, but of supernatural birth, John writes in John chapter 3. And so, as you do that, as you are born again, spiritually reborn into this family of God, there's this crazy thing that happens and there's a desire to want to look like your dad. There's there's a desire to want to resemble the family values. There's a desire to want to live out the the commands of God in your life. And this is what the Bible calls this fruits, right? There's fruits of the spirit. When you are a believer, that's going to manifest in your life in a certain way, not to make God love you more, not to earn you entrance into the kingdom, but to reflect the reality that's already there, that you belong to the family of God. This isn't new. It's not new. God's always done this. Adam and Eve, they were created, family. God gave them a job. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have kids. Multiply. Name the animals. God formed them together and gave them a function. Same thing with Noah. He called Noah. He said, Noah, build an ark. I have a job for you. He said, Abraham, go, leave your daddy's house, take your family and go to the land that I'm going to show you. God, when he brings you into his family, he gives you a function to reflect his design and his goodness. God's laws don't save you, but they teach you the way that life works best. And so when you are formed into the family of God, your function is to image, is to reflect the God who made you, the God who saved you, the God who loves you. But here's the problem, is that even if you belong to the family of God and you believe in Jesus and your sins are forgiven and you know you're supposed to do this stuff, you're supposed to, 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 to do what the Bible says, you're supposed to follow the commands of God. We don't, right? We struggle, we don't. Um, we can, that's why we confess every week. 
That's why we should make a habit of confessing every day. So what do we do when we belong to the family of God, but we don't live according to the family rules? And it's at this point, I I would say, remember the elephants. You see, P.T. Barnum, when he sent those elephants across the bridge, he was doing it to show that this bridge is safe, but he was also doing it to show that the function of the bridge worked. The function of the bridge was to unite Brooklyn and Manhattan, which used to be different cities. But because the bridge was built, because it worked, because the elephants walked across, the bridge stood in its function of uniting two separate things was true. Kids, I believe this morning in uh, Miss Debbie's Sunday school class that you try to jump, right? You try to jump how far you could jump between the two lines. And that was illustrating that in our sin, we're really far away from God. In our sin, we are really separated from God. But, 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 but remember the elephants. They showed us that you can make a bridge between two things that are really far apart. And at the cross, at the cross, God takes all of his wrath that we earned as children of wrath. All of his wrath against every sin that we could ever commit, past, present, and future. And he pours out that wrath, not on you as children of wrath, but on his own son so that what you might be forgiven, redeemed, reconciled to the Father. You who were once far off, separated from God in your sin, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. You at the cross have been reconciled to the Father and brought into the family of God for eternity. And so maybe don't remember the elephants, but remember that at the cross, Christ secured your entrance into the family He filled you with His Spirit so that you might walk according to the Spirit, not according to your sinful desires, but according to the design of God who made you and who loved you and who redeemed you in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that even though we were once far off, You brought us near by the blood of Christ, that we might be united to You in faith, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a family united together in faith to you, but reconciled to each other, even though we sin against you and each other all the time. Father, I pray that you would teach us what it means um, to live as your people in a world that's increasingly hostile to us. Lord, that we would be faithful to your word, faithful to the movement of your spirit, that we would be faithful to know that even though there is difficulty that you have overcome the world. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.